everybody. Uh, I've got the right thing behind me, which is keep calm and carry on. We'll just think Winston Churchill here. I also really want to acknowledge the fact that we're in a very weird place right now, and I think nobody will disagree with me. Uh, in the past, when I've had the honor of, of participating in, in these conferences, and they have been really hard because people are grappling with intense grief and there are different places on their journey. But here now, we're against a backdrop of a global pandemic of so many, so much pain in the world of uprising and, and, and uh, insecurity and, and, and stress. So whatever our current pain is, wherever we're feeling, whatever we're feeling is being exacerbated by a sort of global dis-ease. So I just want to acknowledge that. And I also want to acknowledge, because I'm going to, get, I'm going to take you on a, a journey. I want to acknowledge the fact that every single one of you, wherever you are, is in a different place on this journey. And the journey for many of you began unexpectedly, maybe in the last couple of months with the COVID crisis. I'm heart goes out to you. But whatever the trigger for your journey, you're in intense grief and it's loss and it's pain and it's raw and it's cycles. And I'm, I'm right by the ocean and I know what that feels like. And then there are the people who are maybe, you know, a year or two into it. And it's just as hard, you know, you, you have maybe longer moments of the ocean uh, not battering you against the wall, but it's really, really hard. And then there are those who've been on that journey for a longer time and they're getting a glimpse of hope at the end of that really long, dark tunnel. And then there are people who have gone through the tunnel, come out the other end, blinking in the light, and who can potentially spark hope for you. And we're gonna spark joy today. Please God, I wanna to try to spark joy. And I wanna remind you what it is to be a spark, to, to feel a spark. A spark is light that comes suddenly out of darkness. And I wanna go back in time to, I was 23 years old. I just uh, you know, graduated from college. I had married the, the dream, the, the husband of, of my dreams, a young British guy, and he was taking me to England to live in what my mind's eye was a palace. I couldn't wait because I felt like this little bird in a cage and I just wanted to get out of Cedar Rapids, Iowa. So uh, <laughs> take, me, take me away. I traveled with my lovely husband to uh, London, England, and moved into what was not necessarily the palace that I'd quite envisioned, but it was certainly uh, a house, and it was the perfect place to raise two lovely children. Uh, let me show you those two lovely children. Uh, Dan, on, obviously on the left, and Amy Louise, uh, who was his little sister, was born four years later. Now, I was uh, always ready for something more. Somehow in my life, I've never been quite uh, able to uh, handle the status quo. So I was very excited and relieved when we moved to Nairobi, Kenya, and ended up in this really magical place with this lovely husband of mine and Amy uh, and Dan. And I became a journalist, which was a really exciting thing to be at a time of rapid change in, in Kenya. This was a, a time of rapid change in Nairobi, Kenya, a time when the, the entire environment needed uh, shifting. It was early independence. And I began to interview people who were creatively dealing with problem solving. They were active souls and they were rolling up sleeves and solving problems. I took my son, Dan, along uh, with me. This is Dan. And it was 
pretty amazing because it felt like everywhere Dan went, he was sparked by the ideas that people had uh, for problem solving. And it happened that he decided to take on some problems himself. The first thing he tackled was a little girl who needed a heart operation. Uh, her name was Atiano, and Atiano was a scholarship student in Nairobi in his school. She lived in the worst township in Kibera, close to us, and she had no possibility of getting any kind of medical help if, unless somebody intervened. Dan decided to take on the challenge of raising money for this little girl, and he threw parties, wild parties in our backyard, uh, and created something called Operation Save a Life. Uh, the little girl's life was saved, and Dan got kind of hooked on the fact that, you know, you have power to change the world around you. He moved on to take tackle a Maasai uh, family, and the mother, a lovely woman, had a no-good, deadbeat husband who, uh, and so they didn't have the school fees. So Dan decided to uh, raise money by selling jewelry that the Maasai mother was making. And you can see the beautiful jewelry on her neck. And he sold the jewelry and I'm wearing a piece right now. And that was very exhilarating because he discovered he could really, you know, make a big impact in that, in that environment. He moved on to tackle an entire community. And this was a community of refugees who were living in Malawi in a camp. There were 14,000 people. They had no uh, water at all. He mobilized. 15 of his friends to raise money to pay for their journeys down to, to Malawi in two battered old, terrible uh, Land Rovers across multiple countries, across war zones, to bring aid to that refugee camp. And it was a transformative experience for everybody, as you can imagine. Uh, I, I, in the middle of the right-hand uh, screen, you'll see Christopher Nolan, the great filmmaker who is the uh, directed Inception and Batman. He was on that trip and I found a letter from him the other day which indicated that that was a, the transformative part of his life. So out of that really hard thing, Dan found a silver lining, which was to bring those kids to, to, uh, to really help the people help themselves. So it was never a hands down, it was always like hands across. Here, here's a way I want you to be able to help yourself. Dan discovered there was a famine in Somalia. He, he together with a young friend of his traveled up to Somalia to discover if, if people really were dying. And the photographs that he took, and you can see the little girl with the, the, the pot was so, so hungry and the starving child on the left. Those photographs were among the, the many that he took, which literally triggered a global response and Operation Restore Hope. He traveled back to Somalia six months later and discovered that the children who were starving were fed. And it was an exhilarating moment for him that made him want to continue. He traveled back to Somalia over and over for the next year, uh, but tragically, the country was descending into a terrible civil war. Uh, the day that this picture appeared in, in Newsweek magazine, I called Dan and I said, Dan, please, it's time to leave. It's too dangerous. He said, Mom, don't ask me to leave, but my job is not done. Tragically, two weeks later, Dan, together with three of his young colleagues, uh, young journalists, were killed and stoned and beaten to death by a mob. And it was not a racist thing. It, there were, half of them were black, half of them were white. It was about justice. Uh, there was a terrible bombing. The people retaliated against the journalists who were there to help them. So it was just an accident. But it's, it, it transformed my life, the lives of his friends, and 
you know, you all know what I'm talking about. So I traveled to Nairobi to watch uh, the young people light a, 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 a bonfire to commemorate the sparks Dan lit and others. I traveled back home and I was convulsed with grief. I, I moved to Los Angeles determined to make a feature film that would tell the story of Dan and his friends. But I was in such pain that honestly, I was pretty paralyzed. There wasn't a, a whole lot that I could do. It turned out that Amy and I were both going through the same sort of horrible grief. Amy was 19 years old and really pretty paralyzed as well. She dropped out of college and, and one day she called me and she said, Mom, I can't go on. This was about a year into our, our, our loss of Dan. And she said, I really can't go on. And I said, I said, I feel the same way, but I knew that wasn't going to be the right response for her. So I, I kind of looked across my bedroom and I saw a dream catcher hanging from a lamp. And I said, Amy, I know what you can do. You can create an angel catcher. And it's a journal to capture the memories of Dan. And sure enough, uh, Christmas, she turned up with her um, a bulging book of memories of Dan under her arm. And she called it her angel catcher. So we together uh, created a book with Chronicle Books, uh, which is still a bestseller to this day. I have to say that with the publication of that book, it's like there was a little glimmer of hope in my, in my heart. I felt like I had released some of the pain and I was able to go on that journey. And the, the book is really about going through the pain, going through it, going through all the, if there are stages of grief, go through all of it, and then really try to create meaning. You may never find meaning, but you might be able to create meaning in that loss. And it can be a tiny thing. It can be a window garden that you put uh, your energy, your grieving energy into to just remind you of that, the, the, the joy of that person, the joy that that person gave you. So that, that was a, a, a route. We went on to create, it was really impossible to create the feature film. So Amy and I uh, worked on a documentary called Dying to Tell the Story. And David also mentioned choosing projects that might relate to what happened to your, your, the person you love. And there's mad, uh, mad mothers against drunk driving is a really good example of them. But it could be as easy as just befriending a child who may be in danger of opiate or misuse, or just finding something that that you feel you can make a positive contribution. It doesn't have to cost money. It doesn't require, you know, massive organizational. It requires you caring and putting that loving energy, that, that energy that would have been grief into something positive. And again, as I began to do these projects and, and as I began to get out of myself, it's like I opened the windows of my soul. And this I called uh, the windows of my soul. I, I did this. These are my doodles. I'm throwing them in because they were part of my healing, honestly. Um, the next in, uh, sort of endeavor was, as I was coming out of myself, was to create with my daughter, Amy, we launched something called Creative Visions. And the, the concept of Creative Visions is that we all have a creative spark within us. Every single one of us has a creative spark. And it's what do we do with that spark? How do we use it? not only for ourselves, but also for others. How do we become creative activists? Like those people Dan discovered all those years ago in, in Kenya, the people who activate their souls and take on something in the world around them. Check out creativevisions.org. We've been up and running now since 1998 and we've touched 100 million people. Now that was just like, how crazy is that? Not about me, it's about 
each individual tackling something and in sparking something in somebody else and they tackle something and off we go. And this is what we need right now in this particular period is that sense of belief that we can make a difference in the world around us. Here we are, you know, I'm at the stage of whew, deep breath. Um, and that's when you sort of think about who are you? And how are you going to be in this world? And what really matters? You know, honestly, I think for co this COVID period has made a lot of us question what really matters. I think connection matters. And I think the simplicity of life, we've discovered how much we don't need. And maybe we've really discovered the power of connecting with ourselves, with our own essence, with one another, and then with that spirit sense. I actually wrote a book, which uh, is called In the Heart of Life, and it examines that connection that I had to myself, to one another, and also to another dimension. You know, does it matter whether there's life after life? Not necessarily. I personally believe there is, and I've had a really interesting interaction, which I describe um, with Dan's noisy spirit and with other noisy spirits, who I believe help fuel what I get to do in the world. It makes me a very noisy, active spirit. And finally, it took me 23 years, but I finally managed to make the film about Dan and his friends. It's called The Journey is the Destination. It's available on Netflix. Uh, if you have Netflix, I'd love you to watch it. But you know what? As proud as I am of the film, which was directed by a wonderful woman director, Bronwyn Hughes, and stars Ben Schnetzer, and and Maria Bello plays me, what a cool thing that was. As proud as I am of that film, I have to tell you that it really didn't matter in the end. It was important to, for me to have done it. But the, the thing that mattered in those 23 years between the time that Dan had been killed and the film finally came out was the journey itself, where the obstacles, the barriers, the people I got to meet along the way who had themselves gone through something really, really hard. Because there's a difference, you know, if people haven't gone through stuff, sometimes it's almost harder to connect with them uh, because they haven't gone on that journey. They haven't been through the tunnel. They haven't stumbled into the light or hoped for th that there was light. So I have been blessed, as I'm sure you will discover, by the people who have gone on that journey. So for me, the journey was an awakening, a revelation, uh, a coming of, uh, of age, and, 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 and I would wish that you too would understand that there is no real destination. It really, truly is the journey. There's a wonderful quote that I love. Uh, it's by Ralph Waldo Emerson, which I think is relevant today. It's the one thing in the world of value is the active soul. Free, sovereign, unencumbered. This every man is entitled to. This every man holds within, but in most it's obstructed and is yet unborn. I would suggest that we don't have to wait till we soar to activate our souls, but that we can activate our souls based on that which has happened to us and start living a more fulfilling, sparky, and uh, purposeful, meaningful life. So here I am, uh, many years on, uh, still with that spirit, a much wiser soul for sure, still hoping that I can participate in the sparking of, of joy in each one of you and the belief that there is hope ahead, there is meaning to be created, not necessarily found, 
but to be created in that loss that you've endured. And out of that loss, I pray, will come enormous joy one day. And it's not a uh, continuous journey. You will be up and down, in and out, over and under and through. But thank you so much to each and every one of you. I've learned that it helped me to help others, to know I'm not the only one, put one foot in front of the other, find a life. Adding hope to the darkness, you start on the trip to recovery. Reach deep down inside and say, I am going to live on. We laugh, we cry, and remember. Hope without action doesn't work. Hope with action can change the world. We always say, if you've lost hope, please lean on ours.
I've learned that it helped me to help others, to know I'm not the only one, put one foot in front of the other, find a life. Adding hope to the darkness, you start on the trip to recovery. Reach deep down inside and say, I am gonna live on. We laugh, we cry, and remember. Hope without action doesn't work. Hope with action can change the world. We always say, if you've lost hope, please lean on ours.